Welcome to this episode of Bob Cooney's VR Deep Dive Podcast. In this series, Bob connects you with some of the leading innovators and thinkers in location-based VR. Bob Cooney, we are live today with a very special edition of the Being Virtual Show. We're live streaming to, I don't know, three Facebook pages, Twitter versus Periscope, to Twitch, and on my website at bobcooney.com and beingvirtual.tv. And I am here with Peter Chatty. Say hi, Peter. Hey, Bob. It's good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. So Peter is um, one of the people that I follow for insights in digital media. Um, he's been in the industry for a long time. I'm going to let you tell a little bit about your background for, um, for my audience who probably, because I'm not sure how much of our, our intersections have, have crossed over, um, at least until recently on social media. Got it. Yeah, no, happy to do it. I'll keep it really brief. So I've been in the media and entertainment and tech world for about 30 years, and I, I've worn just about every hat as you can imagine. Started off as an entertainment lawyer. Don't hold that against me. Then I moved into the studios like Universal, New Line, became a business exec, doing a lot of international business deals, transactions. Then I became a serial entrepreneur and I ran a number of, built and ran and sold a number of digital media companies in video and music. And then for the past several years, I've been more of an advisor, a connector, a deal guy. And I also do, um, you know, some, uh, a fair amount of writing and thought leadership. Yeah, well, you've been, you know, you've been somebody, as I've said, following, follow Peter. You've got a website, creative, C-R-E-A-T-V dot media. Correct. That's you it. Have a book you've just released. Talk about that. I do. Yeah, I do. I have a new book that I, in the madness of the pandemic, as we were all locked down, because I barely sleep as it is, I just decided to write a book. And I, so I wrote a book uh, that I published just a couple of weeks ago. So it's very fresh called Viral Media Entertainment in the Age of the Great Pandemic. And it covers all sectors of the media and entertainment business, essentially video, music, immersive, esports, live experiential. And not only talks about the way the, of the business today, but also going out into this decade and then beyond that. And if anybody's interested, what I'm doing is my own small gestures. I'm making it available for free to people. So PDF format. So if anybody's interested, you can just go to my website, send me a note via the contact list, and you'll, you'll get the book. Yeah, and I highly recommend it, by the way, because there's some great thinking in there. And we're going to dive into some of that um, on this show. And so I'm going to start out with something that I've been writing and talking a lot about. And I feel like there were two big stories in the last week in kind of the media entertainment space. And one of them was the theater wars. Yeah. What's happening with, you know, the movie studios versus the theaters and the exclusive distribution window and and how that's going to play out in the future of of location-based entertainment, which theaters are a big part of. So what's your your take on that? And how do you think that's going to play out? 
Well, you're right. It's, it is the big story. It's really probably one of the, if not the headline of the changes in the media and entertainment world during the pandemic. So what changed things was obviously movie theaters are completely shut down. So Hollywood studios that have produced these big budget films, all of these movies, they either had a choice of either just waiting and shelving those movies until theaters reopened or making them available on day one now, instead of in movie theaters, but in your homes. And Trolls World Tour from Universal Studios is the one that really broke this log jam because it's something the studios wanted to do for a long time. And just really quickly, windowing, for those of you who don't know what that term is, windowing is, has been a decades-long phenomenon in the media and entertainment in the world of Hollywood and movies. So what that means is that the theatrical window was all, theatrical got the major films day one, day one. And then they were held back from in-home distribution, you know, originally when it was DVDs, things like that, but now for on-demand streaming, on-demand um, you know, uh, purchase, all of that for about three months. That was kind of the window and how things have evolved. And movie theaters fought the studios tooth and nail to try to change that and experiment with what they call day and date release in home. So you would release the film on the same day in home, make it available for streaming on the same date that it was day one in the movie theater. But they only did that with like these little niche movies that nobody heard about, had no marketing budget behind them, and nobody other than the, like the yeah. mother of the director wanted to see, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But one interesting thing, Netflix and, and Amazon, they started making quote unquote films, obviously, like what does what does a movie mean anymore when you have television platforms like this? But they started making their big budget feature films and making them available on their platforms first. And so that already upset the theater owners. So there was a lot of a lot of debate about all this. And again, now pan the pandemic and the fact that we're locked in together in this collective quarantine really forced the issue and gave the studios the opportunity. The, the moral high ground, I would call it, right? Yeah, the moral high ground, the opportunity for the first time to really to do this experiment and feel like they could defend it because they had no, no place else to put the product. And so Trolls does $100 million in three weeks. Right. right. And then Warner Brothers says, hey, we're going to dip our toe in the water with Scoob. And we'll see yeah. how that does in the next couple of weeks. And so, but everybody's still saying, you know, the theaters are still saying, oh, you know, the big tent poles. And you've even said this, the tent poles, you know, and, and, and describe what a tent pole is. Like, so, so yeah. the big movies, right? Right. So just one quick note about the economics of it, because I think this is interesting, too. And then I'll get into the tent poles and what I see happening there. The typical split when a movie is in the theaters, over time, it roughly, it roughly goes to about 50% to the studio owner, 50% to the movie theaters. So it that's- It declines over time. Like as it the declines over older, time. It goes, it goes down, right? Completely. So it's above 50% to the studio in the early weeks. So if there's a $200 million grossing film, the studio just very roughly gets $100 million of that, okay? So- when you do the in-home distribution, it's an 80-20 split. 80% goes to the studio. So here's the way the math works. The original Trolls grossed about $150 million domestically. Given the split, it was about $75 million, $80 million to the studio. Well, Trolls in its first three weeks reportedly has grossed $100 million in in-home distribution. So if you look at the 80-20 rule, 
80 million dollars goes back to the studio so already it's rough it's roughly the same so the economics are interesting this is the way i see it playing out i do believe that the genie is out of the bottle so now that this has happened studios are going to follow along kind of like when the pandemic you know cities are opening up and so it's hard for other city cities not to open up I see that the family-friendly films like Trolls, where you have younger kids and parents who need to find babysitters and all that, which gets expensive, they've been looking for this in-home release from the very beginning. Now there will be people more. People will spend an unlimited amount of money entertaining their kids. Like that's well known, right? We'll, we'll spend whatever you want. Here, here's your money, kid. Right? There's no question. That's why Disney Plus does so well, by the way. Yeah. No question about it. But and so I think that the family friendly films, you'll see a lot more of those being released at home like trolls. Then I think that you'll see there. This was already the trend for, you know, older people like me, where you have more adult fare, less, you know, family kitty movies. Those were already got, kind of being squeezed out of the movie theaters already. So indie films. So you'll see more, that was already a trend and that was already happening. But I think the teenagers, and to your point, like the tentpole movies, and the tentpole movies are the big, um, like, superhero movies, the Marvel movies, the Star Wars movies, those franchise films that really are the, you know, those are the ones that generate all the money for the studios. Those are largely driven by teens, and teens will, you know, teens and early, you know, young people. Those tentpole movies, they're events. And events will not go away and events want to be held out of home into big places where people can congregate and they will congregate again. I'm, I am optimistic about that. So that's the way I see this playing out. So I have another theory and I want to ask you about this. So, so yeah. large pay-per-view events specifically around MMA and boxing have been taking in big nine-figure halls, right? And most recently, Mayweather against McGregor did $700 million in one night. So, right. So do you see Disney, right, doing Star Wars at 100 bucks for the first showing and doing a half a billion or a billion dollars in revenue in one showing direct-to-video because you only need a couple of million people to, you need a million people to drop a, hundred, you know, a couple of hundred bucks. Like it's a yeah. – is that going to happen or is that just too risky for them or – Am I just looking too far in the future? Am I crazy? Yeah. Well, I think your point, listen, it's experimentation time, and it'd be foolish not to experiment. Now, when you put that kind of money behind a film like a Star Wars, it's obviously a massive risk to change the game, change the business model. But there's no question, what you just said, like that example, I believe could be massively successful, for sure, because it's an event in and of itself. It's newsworthy that you're doing this for the first time. So I think and would that the theaters, would AMC have the balls to block Star Wars? Well, look, you know, this is where um, if you start blocking those kind of films, then you start blocking your own opportunity and they're already challenged in so many different ways. Here's the thing. I think that at the end of the day, what's happening and already happened pre pandemic, it's just being accelerated that rules want to be broken. That, you know, there's flexibility and experimentation is the way to go. And just because certain business models, and I'm not saying this lightly, but just because business models have been in place for decades doesn't mean that they should be the ones going forward. And you're seeing, so I think that your example is 
brave experimentation. And ultimately, there may be ways for theaters to do things differently than they're doing and not just look at their economics the way they are. So as an example, like the movie pass, if we remember $9.99 a month for Unlimited, the theaters still got fully paid, by the way. The economics didn't work for MoviePass, but they were great. People went into the theaters and they bought a lot of popcorn and they made they, a lot of money was exchanged that way. So it's just a question of how, how can the economics be changed? And this is something that you may have read that I've written that it wouldn't surprise me that even though a MoviePass doesn't work as a standalone independent business, as part of something bigger, strategically bigger, like a Netflix or an Amazon, can you imagine that if you had Netflix, a super premium Netflix that's at 20 bucks a month, I don't know, or as part of Amazon Prime, you get another benefit where you get unlimited theaters going into theaters, that could be really good for the movie theater business. Well, will, will we see, you know, Jeff Bezos bought Whole Foods. Yeah. You know, does he come in and buy AMC theaters? Yeah, this is something that, again, I've written about this before where I think that um, that a, that would be a perfect example for as a strategic move for Amazon because Amazon takes a 360 view of the, of customer engagement. They're brilliant this way. So they were virtual completely, but then they were doing things that were boggling people's minds by buying Whole Foods, the, building all of these retail shops as malls were closing down. Now, right now it's tough, but they will come back. And so I do believe for all kinds of strategic reasons that Amazon's looking at movie theaters. Yes. Now, Adam Frisk just posted. He says, team optimism here. Um, people will go out again. And, and we're already seeing that. So there was a mall. Somebody posted a video on Facebook that I saw this morning of a mall opening in Georgia. And the yeah. line, people spaced out every six feet. But the line was around the block to get into the mall when it opened. And so – People are going to go out again. There's no doubt about that. They're going to want to be entertained. I think the business models are what's really in question. Yeah. No, look, uh, this is something that's actually really near and dear to my heart. And so even in my book, you see the discussion, but I close my book with chapters about humanity and about the human need for people to, to get away from just looking down all the time and getting out into the real world, interacting live experiences that are lasting. And I've, I lived that life myself with my family, and it's made all the difference. And I absolutely believe that. I absolutely believe that there's a human need. And we've, you know, a lot of us are going crazy lockdown because we have this human need to get out and rub shoulders and interact with one another and have communal, communal storytelling from the beginnings of time. You know, it's been communal storytelling. Okay. Now, there's a you talked about theaters needing to do things differently. And, and so there's this 4D technology that's been out now for about 10 years. Right. And yeah. it's picking up steam in other countries. But mm -hmm. here in America, there's only a few dozen of these 4D theaters that have wind and motion and, and, and smell and all of these effects. Why hasn't that been adopted more widespread by theaters in the U.S.? And do you see that as a as a maybe potentially a growing trend. I certainly believe that theater experiences will be reimagined and it will go beyond reclining leather seats and sushi and things like that. But I don't, first of all, all the cost and complexity associated with that. I think that there's just been cost factors, but I also believe that the way I see it, that's somewhat gimmicky 
Whereas what I think is more, what I see happening more is kind of like what Disney, just before the pandemic hit, Disney announced a new partnership with uh, Secret Cinema. And Secret Cinema is a company that has full experiences. So you have a show, but you also have, you have the, the theater, you know, the screening, but you also have a pre-show and you have a post-show and you make it kind of an event. So instead of going to an hour and a half movie, it becomes a three hour evening event and I, I think that there's going to be more reinvention that way where you have a full on experience, kind of like going to a, a music festival. It's a music and arts festival like Coachella is where it's just a pl- something that cannot be remotely replicated at home. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So Coachella, um, by the way, if you haven't watched the making of Coachella documentary on YouTube, check it out. It's fascinating. It it's shocked me at how many of those things I was actually I was there for. Um, and one of them was I was right up front for the Tupac hologram, right? Yeah. And and yeah. with Dre and Snoop, and you know, so let's talk about holograms, avatars, because that's something you talk about as synthetic beings and synthetic humans. Yeah. There's a big intersection there between that and music. What's happening in that space, and and where does that go? Well, I certainly think look, look on the music side, I I know a number of companies that own rights, like publishing rights and master rights for some of the you know, many of the most well-known artists that have passed. And so there have been tours that have been scheduled, virtual tours that have been scheduled, and there's early fascination with them, but there's also a lot of resistance from people who think that that's blasphemy to be doing something like that. I do think that as the technology gets stronger and stronger, this, this virtual presence, whether you are somebody who passed away or not, virtual presence is going to be something that's that's a very significant opportunity. So it's going to be in music, but also think of conferences or musicians who are right now. Let, let's talk about musicians for a moment. Touring is the primary mode of financing their lives and their creative works and completely shut down now. So now there's the scramble for artists of every size, by the way, not just the little the indies and the small guys. Everybody's trying to figure out, OK, my portfolio's down if I have a portfolio. Um, I'm not able to collect money. What can I do now? Well, so there's a lot of experimentation with live streaming. That's great. But imagine where you're able to do things that are, if you're able to be, instead of touring where you go to one show every day or every three days, now you can be in 10 places in the same day. I can be with you, being interviewed with you. I can pop in at a conference and sing a song. I can, you know, give a little spiel at someplace else. So I can be in all these different places and I can charge money each time. I think that's really, really interesting. So virtual presence that way. And then there gets to be things like that you really are very deep in. Like there's a really interesting company called Red Pill VR. I'm not sure if you're from like Red Pill, what they're doing, I think is very cool. And I've demoed it where you can be from your home through virtual reality you can be with Diplo and interacting with Diplo, who's far, far away, but he's actually live. He's DJing live himself from wherever he is, and your friends can join you from wherever they are, and you're dancing together and interacting together. In and, like literally in an immersive 3D environment. That's the thing yeah. that's amazing with what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. You're, and you're interacting. You can be right on stage with Diplo. And by the way, it's not like it's just avatars that are kind of interacting. You're able to communicate live with Diplo. And there's all kinds of possibilities. Can you imagine just one wacky one? 
I saw this film that was on Amazon. It was about live streaming amongst Chinese influencers in this culture that's out there where they're like these these influencers are live streaming and almost like begging their followers to pay them money, pay them money, pay them money. And some of these followers are paying you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to be noticed just so their names get up or they get a shout out from the influencer. And it's, it's fascinating. So you can imagine that there are different ways to monetize in not so blatant ways, but by special recognition, because everybody wants to be recognized. Yeah, everybody wants to be seen. And, and you know, it's fascinating. I, the, the statistics on, on how much money people pay, I read that there's, on average, gamers spend $120 a month paying donations to live streamers. Yeah. Like, you know, because you talk about the, how much money is there for the, for the streaming wars. You know, we're talking about nickels and dimes compared to how much people are paying yeah, streamers just on Discord and, and and on Twitch and YouTube, it's it's shocking to me that and Patreon is another platform that people yep. use just to make these donations. It's it's completely it, you know it's the whole free to play gaming model which is going to be entering into the music world. TikTok's already starting to do that, I think, but and then there, you have some other companies that are doing that. Um, China-based company, I forgot what I think it was. I forgot the name of the the streaming company, but that does a lot of that kind of microtransactional stuff. And we've seen in the gaming side, just like you said, where people don't want to pay to try something, but once they're in the moment, once they're in the experience, it's pretty amazing how when you make it easy to just, okay, contribute, 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 buy this like merch, special merch, if there's a timer on it, then money will flow. And then, you know what? And I don't want to sound so commercial about it either. Like Patreon and some of these platforms, as you said, like Patreon's purpose is you go in because as a consumer or as a a fan, because you love this artist, you want to enable them to have a career in their art. And so you're a patron of them. You're happy to you're happy to invest in them. And I think there's music is a special area that way. That's the end of part one of this interview. Please join us for parts two and three shortly.